Hey everyone, and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas, and I am the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest is a scientist, nutritionist, and an emotional eating coach. We have Maddie Lansdowne. Welcome to the show. Lucas, man, thanks for getting me down. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So for those of you who don't know Maddie, Maddie also lives in Melbourne. We've known each other for a number of years now. And yeah, Maddie, do you want to let my audience know a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So a bit about me. How did I end up where I am now? So I started off a normal kid in the country. Mum was a nurse and that motivated me to look into medicine and health as a career. And I was really dogmatic and believed that science and medicine was like the best thing that humans had ever created. And then moved to the city I studied, my first degree was in forensic science. And so I graduated from that as a molecular biologist. And from there worked at nutrition companies and I worked in a few different fields. And that nutrition company that I worked at worked with elite athletes doing sort of epigenetic nutrition for elite athletes and hyper-personalized nutrition. So we would test their epigenetic profile and basically create powders specific to that profile. So really uh, personalized nutrition. And then from that job, I ended up in cancer research for a while as well. And that was about seven years. And it was that process really that sort of sent me down the natural health nutrition path, originally being very like science and medicine is everything, naturopathies for crazy hippies. And I started there and it's funny that I'm here now. But yeah, I simply on the first few months of working at the cancer hospital, I didn't have any oncology experience at the time and thought, you know, I need to catch up with what cancer is all about, basically. And so I, I just went to the World Health Organization website at my desk at the hospital and just thought, I'm going to start from the start and go super deep on this because they'd also asked me in the interview process, do you want to do a PhD? We can make some of your work, some of your qualification stuff. So I thought, I'm just going to start from the top and begin digging. And the first sentence on the cancer page of the World Health Organization, and this was 10 years ago or so now, was... 90 to 95% of cancer is diet, lifestyle, and tobacco. And so that really hit me because I was like, if we, if the World Health Organization, which runs the world's medical system, or at least guides the world's medical systems, says that it's diet, lifestyle, and tobacco, and I work in a cancer hospital, why is 90 to 95% of this building not about diet, lifestyle, and tobacco? And so I literally went straight to my uh, professor's office at the time, and I just said, why don't we do diet and lifestyle? And he just laughed and it was like patting a dog on the head. It was just like, oh, Maddie, that's cute that you think that we could fix problems with food. And I didn't at this point either. I was just curious because um, the next sentence then said five to 7% of people, it's only five to 7% of people that have molecular bad luck, essentially, which is that they're born with a particular phenotype and or they have, just have bad luck with their genes. But if you ask 90 to 95% of people, most people assume cancer is bad luck, right? They just, they've had a terrible situation happen or, or whatever. And when you hear someone get diagnosed with cancer, they just wave the white flag. There's nothing we can do. This is it. I've been doomed. And so it was that event 
in, in combination with my experience working with athletes and my growing up with my mom as a nurse and stuff, it was that event that I was like, something's not right here. There's a disconnect, right? There's a disconnect between the World Health Organization saying that it's all of this stuff and the fact that I work in a building that's basically medicine in response to symptoms. And so that just sent me down a research rabbit hole outside of my job, which was all about the pharmaceutical industry, all about Western medicine, the Rockefeller fam- family, the suppression of natural medicine, tr- learning about traditional Chinese medicine and doing some education there, doing some education in Ayurvedic medicine, learning about energy medicine, like going full woo-woo as much as I could, basically, and just really understanding then, I guess, capitalism and what was behind everything, which didn't result in me becoming anti-medicine, but I'm definitely at a place now that I think that everybody should have a seat at the table in order to solve problems rather than Western medicine being 90 to 95% of the, pro- the solution, if you know what I mean. Because it's, it's really symptom and drug response. It's not causation and behavior change. And that's where I went, right? Is So I realized this And one day I did my own little research study. I got my phone out and I went to every ward of the hospital and I counted everybody in the beds that was visibly overweight to me because the research had started coming out that obesity and being overweight led to metabolic disease and then led to cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, insert modern disease. And so I thought, I'm in a hospital. I go in and out of three hospitals a day. I'm going to go and confirm this for myself. And so even though this is not in any way a legitimate study, all the numbers that I counted up on my phone, I I hit 88%. It was like 88% of the several hundred people. And I walked into every single ward of the hospital, not just the cancer wards. And it was approximately 88%. And And I was like, this makes sense. This seems to align. And so from there, I was like, I'm going to become a nutritionist. And so that's when I started a lot of my food educations and certifications at different kinds of things. And then I did that for a while. And I, I traveled around the world to wellness events and conferences and retreats as a speaker and realized that literally everybody I'd ever spoken to already knew that meat and vegetables was pretty good. I've never met somebody that didn't roughly know what to eat. So I was like, oh, if people already know what to eat, why don't they do it? And that's where I do most of my work now is that it comes down to fundamentally behavior change and the psychology and mindset behind behavior change for most people that they need to do the work because most people could tell you a hundred areas of their life that they need to improve. It's why don't I do it? So Mm. that in a nutshell is the story. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's super, super interesting, Maddie. What I'm curious to learn about is I guess when you're working at the cancer research lab and things like that, how did they approach cancer was it they were looking for one specific pathway and a particular drug to counteract one pathway or like what did that look like yeah so i guess in the grand scheme of things i was pretty low on the rungs of the ladder in the team i'm surrounded by professors and three-time doctors and all of this kind of stuff but the i worked in a translational research lab and, and the best way to understand what that means is basically bench top to bedside so how do we get the stuff that makes sense in the literature to be applicable to a human setting essentially and so the re- kind of research they did in the lab that i worked was basically understanding trying to test people's genetics genetic profiles and based on that genetic profile being able to then suggest uh, a list of drugs in a particular order so it was based on your genetic profile drug a c and d in that order 
should be delivered to get the best possible result. And it was always, yes, specific pathways, specific cytokines, really specific SNPs and molecular readouts and that type of thing. And that we get hyper-individualized therapies is the end goal. And it sounds really appealing, like hyper-personalized medicine, but what still blows my mind to, to this day, and I did sitting in these meetings and listening to people's presentations and stuff, is that nobody ever talked about cause. Like nobody ever talked about the cause and nobody ever talked about how do we change the thing that creates cancer? Because depending on the cancer, the relapse rate is extremely high, like almost a hundred percent. And that's because either one of two things is going to happen. Somebody's going to relapse. It's just a matter of time or they'll die before they relapse. So we can't, everybody plans for relapse to happen. And so that's because we haven't dealt with the cause of the disease. So of course, relapse is going to happen. And that's that was one of the light bulbs I had. I was like, oh, so they leave their life where the cancer was created. They come to the hospital, which is a different environment. And maybe they stay here for a while. They get some chemo, whatever, we, surgery, we get rid of the cancer. And then they go back to the life that caused the cancer. And that was the kind of the one of the other light bulbs that I was like, the cancer happened out there. We might fix them here, but they're going back there. Right. Mm. So, yeah, it was like no matter how deep down the snip rabbit hole we go to separate every single person into their own little subcategory, they're still going back to the place that caused the cancer. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's a really important point. And I want to dive deeper into some of the causes. I know before, I know this is a bit of a controversial topic around the major causes of cancer, but obviously you mentioned obesity being a, I guess, it's definitely not going to help the situation being obese, mm. metabolic syndrome, high insulin, all that sort of stuff. What else do you find were some of the other major causes? Was it like poor nutrition, nutrient deficiencies? What else did you uncover? Yeah, the way that I think about it, which is a, it's a broad idea to encapsulate all of the things is that if we don't have an, an appropriate pathway for detox, the body will create its own rubbish tip, essentially. And that's, a, I think, a really easy way to understand cancer, right? It's if we're not getting enough of the crap out of the body, we need somewhere to store it. And so it might be a tumor or it might be a tumor that is flowing through the blood. And so whether it be a lack of detoxification and many medical professionals will say, you've got a liver, you don't need to do detoxes. And I'm like, sure, if it's 700 years ago, but now we've got so many different chemicals in our environment, especially if you live in a city, you're breathing in all sorts of fumes, brake dust, and all of the fumes from air planes and all the cars and trucks on the road, plus all of the chemicals that come out of factories. So that's just the air. And then we've got the water, which is something you and I were talking about on my podcast. There's so many chemicals in the water. And that's just two of the most basic things that we need to survive as humans, air and water before we even get to the food. And every day we seem to progress further and further away from real food with lots of synthetic chemicals and lots of different flavor enhancers and things that bulk food up that actually have no nutritional value things like polydextrose and stuff like that that just add weight physical mass to food but don't actually supply nutrition and then all of that leads to then a behavior set which is like driven by a need to fulfill this void that's not being fed because it's like we haven't been given these people appropriate nutrition they're high it's highly likely they've been protein deficient for a really long time because the western diet is inherently protein deficient because everything's driven by carbs and uh, refined carbs and grains and and 
then on top of that convenience so convenience is stuff in a bag a box or a can which is also protein deficient and we've all got this advertising these days too like protein balls you, and you look on the back of the protein ball and it's three grams of protein like what this is not a protein ball this is just a ball <laughs> So yeah, so there's pollutants and toxins and the stuff that are under our our kitchen sink, under our bathroom sink. So much of that stuff we use every day. For women, particularly makeup, the stuff they put on their skin, we absorb that as well. Deodorants, all of these different types of chemicals are in some way contributing to dysfunction in the body, which can negatively influence a metabolic status, so developing metabolic syndrome, but equally the detoxification of something that will eventually end up being cancer because we're not clearing the body out. Now, cancer is a normal part of the body because we should, cancer cells are a sort of a normal thing to have. It's when they reach a point of excess, obviously that's a problem. But in this very toxic world that we live in, it's extremely hard to avoid it. And we're getting to the point too, where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because everyone says, it's one, cancer's one in two now. It's, it's so bad everyone I know has got cancer and we're doing research on the population where it's got one in two have cancer so now it seems normal that everybody has cancer I would say that it's common it's not normal it's definitely not normal that so many people have cancer it's not normal that so many people have obesity it's not normal that 80 or 90 percent of people have metabolic syndrome it's extremely common because of the convenience capitalist economically driven food industry that we've created Mm, yeah some really good points there What about Maddie, in terms of the emotional eating aspect and instilling behavioral change when it comes to, let's say somebody is just starting out with their weight loss journey, where do you start in terms of altering their mind state? Because obviously that's incredibly important. Like how do you go about addressing that? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's two sides to it, right? There's the sort of scientific and practical, which involves neurotransmitters, hormones, nutrient deficiencies. And then there's the sort of uh, emotional aspect to it, which is the way that somebody feels, the stories they have about themselves, the belief systems that they use to operate their life. And what I've found is that there's both of those things are always in play. And as we said before, a lot of people already know what they should be doing to go from a state of not healthy to healthy. Most people know they probably need to move a bit more. They know that they probably need to drink a little bit less coffee or a little bit less alcohol. It's pretty easy for those people to know that stuff. They already know where we're going to move, generally speaking, in the direction of getting some whole real food, some colors on their plate, some more protein in. And then So for most people, that part's okay in the sense that they understand what we're going to do. It's the other side of things which people can be a bit resistant to because, and it's fundamentally the psychology of addiction. So in the Western world, we are so incredibly privileged that we have abundant access to dopamine. And what I mean by that is that the hyper palatable foods, the social media, porn, like whatever you want that feels good is accessible to you in absolute endless quantities. And it's ironic that the most wealthy, safe countries in the world have the highest amount of depression, suicide, anxiety, and that type of thing. And it's simply because of the lack of ability to regulate your relationship with those things. Now, dopamine is obviously a natural part of the, the motivation and drive to get up in the morning, to have sex and procreate the species, to... <clears throat> To also eat, of course, which would be, if we're in the wild, it would be to hunt and that drive to do those things. But when we're hit with microdoses of of the dopamine doing different things throughout the day, 
we we lack then the drive to go and get the big hit of dopamine because there's no risk. We don't have to risk anything because it's fundamentally it should be a risk reward sort of exchange that happens. It's I'm going to spend three hours hunting. I'm going to risk my life. I'm going to kill the buffalo and then the dopamine will be huge and I'll feel amazing and I'll supply nutrition to all of the tribe. Whereas these days, the second we open our eyes, we don't even have to get out of bed. We just have to roll over to our phone and we can just go pornhub.com, <laughs> right? And just get this massive smash of dopamine straight off the bat without putting any risk in or whether it be straight to the fridge. And the first thing you do is like some type of sugary food. Even if you think you're being healthy and you're going for muesli, yogurt and fruit, we're still doing a lot of refined carbs and sugars in that first in that first hour of the day without putting any risk or effort in. And so... This is part of the problem is that we have fundamentally become addicted to positive, what we perceive to be positively stimulating experiences, which produce dopamine. And the reality of the way that the brain works is that we've got the, the, the brain's always trying to go, the, well, the whole body is trying to always go back to homeostasis. So this place where everything's just a baseline at normal. And so every time we go in the direction of dopamine, there's this process called the opponent process reaction. And the idea of that is that when we swing in the direction of uh, dopamine and pleasure is that there needs to be an equal pain response to balance that out. And what happens is then we end up on this seesaw of pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain and pleasure and pain. And we fundamentally need more of each to go in each direction because just like drug addicts and alcoholics, we've become addicted to that process. And so we need our tolerance goes up, our tolerance goes up. And so we need more and more. So if we're thinking in the context of your relationship with food or emotional eating, it's like in the beginning, it's all oh, this feels good. I'm eating this because it gives me some pleasure and some happiness. And many people go towards those foods because they're lonely or they're disconnected or they learned that when they were really young, maybe they grew up in a a house with no love or connection that when they had the sugar or mum gave me chocolate, I had these emotions. I had these experiences, which are connected to dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin. And so as you get older, Whenever you have that need or you feel that some level of pain or discomfort, so you're on the other side of the, the seesaw, you want to move towards those emotions which feel good and you've learned over the course of your life that, oh, ice cream does that for me, remembering that our tolerance goes up over time. And plus, we, we grow into adults where we don't have to regulate ourselves. Mum isn't here to tell me to stop eating anymore. And so this is where it's through this process that we develop this emotional attachment to food. And many of the people that I work with, they whether it be chocolate or whether it be wine or whether it be ice cream, whatever it is, they know that they probably shouldn't be eating it as much as they do, but it it fills that gap of dopamine, which shows up to them as connection, love, nurture, in response to loneliness, heartache, stress, all of these types of emotions. So even if we're nailing the diet and we're doing all the nutritional stuff, if we don't actually address these stories and belief systems that underpin the behavior that exists, then we're actually not going to make any change. And we have to start by that step there, understanding what purpose these foods serve currently and in the past before we can begin to change it. This is, yeah, this is incredibly relevant right now because I was just having a chat with a friend about understanding and trying to pinpoint the exact root cause of why people eat a certain way. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned there unwrapping the stories and belief systems that they have in place that actually led to their poor eating behaviors. Yeah. How do you go about facilitating that process of them uncovering the root cause? Like how do you peel back the layers there? 
Yeah. So the first step of the journey. So I try and go about things in a really anti-diet culture way. And that's because Mm -hmm. most people I work with have just tried that kind of jump off the cliff on day one, change everything. And it just didn't last very long. So the first thing that we do is literally just get, give people a journal and it's just continue, excuse me. It's just continue doing the stuff that you've done, but now we're going to observe it. And we're going to start understanding the anatomy of what's going on, the triggers, the cues, understanding this stuff that's actually already in automation. It's already in the subconscious or the unconscious part of the brain. So we actually have to spend a bit of time getting familiar with ourselves and being like, oh, I didn't even realize that I do this when I'm stressed. I didn't even realize that I unconsciously eat Tim Tams when I'm lonely. So we have to start, the first step is like realizing these processes that have probably been going on for 30 years for some people, right? 40 years. And I have a a group of women that I work with that are in their 60s and 70s. Some of these things are so deeply ingrained. They've been going for 50 years. So we really have to get that stuff out of the unconscious mind and bring it into the conscious mind before we can do anything about it. And so that's step one, get familiar with who you are and who you have been, because until we can identify that the Tim Tams equal love, it's not until then that we can go to a place where what are healthy alternatives that we can use to feel love, right? Because if we don't understand that, then we're just using willpower to aimlessly try and do better, but we need to understand the core foundation. So we have to start with understanding the past before we can change the present. Maddie, what what about Oreos? (laughs) (laughs) They're a good vegan treat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely, I can see that being very effective, particularly for people who've never, ever delved into why they actually decide to eat in a certain certain way. And you mentioned like loneliness Mm -hmm. being one really common thing. And that's like making up for maybe the the lack of oxytocin. Yeah. What are some of the other, what about like for X- have you worked with ex-athletes by any chance? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, I've worked with a few stage athletes and yeah, and other people that have been elite level athletes that w- were that in like the 80s or the 90s. And the interesting thing is that they share pictures of back in the day and say, this was my most unhealthy because I was behind the scenes. I was starving myself. And then when I, whenever I could, I just absolutely smashed donuts. And so they're in this, which is something that happens in the bodybuilding world a lot, that kind of behavior. And that, that was actually the time, despite looking amazing and winning competitions and being in magazines, that was actually the foundation of what developed to be a really unhealthy relationship with food which can move into that space of hyper obsession. Many of the people I work with have food fear. So they no longer know, they know heaps of information. They listen to podcasts like this, mine, everybody else's. They've got so much information in their head, but they're like, I don't know what's right for me. This person says it's good. This person says it's bad. So that their life is entirely controlled by the thought of what's happening at the next meal. I can't believe what I did at the last meal. And then they're just beating themselves up and horrible to themselves. So yeah, a lot of those people have developed really poor relationships with food even long after that time because they restricted so hard and then they just blame their lack of control afterwards for as a lack of willpower when fundamentally it was like you were so undernourished that your cortisol levels and adrenaline levels were pushing you to go and find these donuts and these hyper energetic palatable foods because you were actually just really hungry and you were Mm. undernourished and we're beating ourselves up for being undernourished as just a lack of willpower and I couldn't do the 500 calorie diet or whatever it was and so that's obviously not everybody but there's a yeah the people I've worked with that have had 
pasts where they've been stage athletes and I'm talking women. I haven't really worked with any men that have been stage athletes in this emotional eating space, but yeah, they've developed some really unhealthy relationships with food. What about some really extreme diets and extreme approaches that you've seen? I'm curious to hear about some stories about some clients that have, you know, you mentioned 500 calories, but imagine, I'd imagine you've seen the whole gamut, the whole spread of different weird diets, things like that. Do you want to share some of those? Oh, totally, man. I think every one of my clients has done the cabbage soup diet, which was really big in the 90s, which has, it's basically eat super low calorie vegetables is the idea of the the cabbage soup diet. Diuretic? What is it, a diuretic or something? Yeah, it's a diuretic and it's just hyper low calorie, lots of water. And so that's, and I see lots of people have gone through that. The thing is at the time, many of these diets did the job. Like they cut the weight, they, but the consequence was they had low energy. They were really flaky. They have stories of fainting, different things happening to their body at the time. And obviously, as you've probably talked about on this show before, you start messing with some of the set point stuff and your thyroid hormone and regulating that metabolic rate. And, and trying to conserve energy because we've got su- such a little amount of energy going in and people start to experience like really cold temperatures in their body, which we see happen on fasting. So I've, I think everyone I've worked with pretty much has been on some kind of extreme fast, which they just did overnight because it makes sense. If I don't put anything in, it'll all disappear, which basically does make sense, but it doesn't work like that. You lose a lot of water weight. And then by the time you go back to eating, you end up having overfeeding syndrome because you're again, your cortisol is high, your stress response is high because again, you should be hunting. You need to put nutrition in the body. But I've, yeah, I had someone actually just this week in our group share about a 500 calorie diet that she went on, which was mixed in with different days of fasting as well. And that by the end of it, she was feeling really mentally quite low. Her metabolic rate was making her feel really cold all the time. It was summer and she was cold. And that, yeah, she just developed a really unhealthy relationship with the idea of calorie counting. And so after that, she had a massive fear of calories and just everything's got too many calories and I can't have this and can't have that. And the consequence for a lot of these people is that later in life, especially if we're moving towards menopause, is that you're in a situation where you've affected your thyroid and your metabolic rate and the way that you process and store body fat and manage your blood sugar and insulin that it's actually super hard to lose weight (laughs) like we have to go on a really slow long-term journey which doesn't sell because it's not really sexy it's hey come and work with me for four years and we'll get your goal but there's been so much damage in the process to all these diets i read a research study um, recently that said the average woman in the u.s has spent 17 years and forty thousand dollars trying to lose weight and she's still got the same problem and each one of those experiences it's likely that the metabolism was affected negatively crazy what about as far as so there was a i've been thinking about this myself does food taste better when you shouldn't be eating it i've been thinking about this yeah when you're like you shouldn't be eating it but you Mm -hmm. you get it and all of a sudden it tastes good but then what if it's actually within your you're allowed to eat it but then all of a sudden it doesn't taste as good because you feel more rebellious sort of thing yeah, it's part of the, my program. We literally have a conversation around the tennis match that happens in people's minds. So that rebel, the idea that I work with is that the rebel is your inner child, right? So oh. your inner child is actually, all of us are born as boundless creative children, right? With no limitation. So we've all got an inner child that wants to rebel. And then there's also the more mature part of our brain, which imitates the parents in our life. So we learn how to navigate life because there's police officers, there's teachers, there's 
bosses, there's parents. And so there's always this tennis match that's going in a lot, in on uh, people's minds around food. And it's like the, the rebellious child just says, go and have it. Just eat it. Do what you want. We do what we want. And then the parent voice in your head says, don't do it. You shouldn't. And so people are often having this tennis match. And so I believe that what we want to get to is a place of permission. So we've got the tennis match between child and parent in our mind. We actually want to embody the adult, right? And the adult, and people might refer to the adult as your higher self or God or something like that. The adult is non-judgmental because it's usually the judgment that's driving people down these wormholes to begin with of this tennis match. And the rebel always wins. The child always wins because the parent wants to shut the child up basically. And so we end up on this cycle of, oh, yum, that chocolate was delicious. And then the parent comes back in and says, we shouldn't have done that. Should you, you idiot? No wonder you're fat. And then the child just says, whatever, I'll do what I want. And then this is just going on and on. And this is what creates the diet cycle. The place we want to get to with the foods that we're not supposed to have is learning to have permission without punishment. And that's the times that where we say, you know what? I am going to enjoy this. I'm going to consciously eat it. I'm not going to be distracted. I'm not going to, some people watch footy and don't even realize they've had six beers. So we want to actually say, I'm going to sit down and just enjoy the hell out of this Tim Tam. I'm going to, I'm going to eat it slowly. I'm not going to be on my phone and I'm going to be like, you know what? That was amazing. And I'm just going to revel in the dopamine that it gives me. So rather than feel like we're breaking the rules and then circle back around and punish ourselves, because it's that cycle that leads us back time and time again to the foods that we shouldn't eat. So I would say that we should eat them less often with permission. It just makes so much sense. And that's just, yeah, I can see how that could be just much easier for people to sustain because obviously you're talking about like long-term sustainability of different diet models and diet approaches that what's the percentage of so if somebody were to go on like that the cabbage soup diet for let's say i don't know four weeks they lose a bunch of weight and then what's the percentage chance that they'll regain even more weight i think it's, it's even higher right yeah yeah because people have overfeeding syndrome usually because they didn't get all the nutrition they needed. And when you divorce people from things that give them pleasure without solving the problem there, they become like desperate. They become desperate for the thing that's missing. So we have to put in place something that fills the gap. And that's why I do what I do. Because for me, my motivation from day one has been like in the cancer hospital, it's like, why don't we talk about the cause? So the reason I ended up at emotional eating is because I believe for most people, that's the cause. It's they know what to do, right? There's plenty of food and nutrition in the in Australia, at least in America, and that we can actually eat what we need to eat. So it's the stories and beliefs and motivation that cause us to act differently that are the problems. If we do any of these rebound situations where it's like hyper restriction, rebound to even worse than I was before, I believe it's always going to be that there was an emotional deficiency which translates physically into a dopamine deficiency or serotonin or oxytocin or any of the neurotransmitters as well on those nutrient depletion diets. You're not getting the protein that build all of those things either. So you get to the other side and you've just had this part of you that's been missing. It's, oh, give it back. Just like when people come off alcohol or heroin or something and then they end up falling in a hole and going on the worst bender they've ever been on because there was something missing so we really have to fill that gap and that might be finding yeah it might be finding other things that stimulate dopamine in a healthy way and and a a lot of that stuff comes down to being able to ring a friend go for a walk do a workout do 10 push-ups start moving the blood start 
uh, elevating some of those hormones naturally. Have a glass of water, do some breath work. All of this stuff makes us feel good. And, and everyone will say, yeah, but Maddie, it's not the same as a Tim Tam. It's not the same as chocolate. And mm. agreed, there has to be part of you that accepts you're going to be different. And you also have to give yourself permission for it to not go perfectly because it not going perfectly usually leads to people beating themselves up and sabotaging themselves. So it's almost, let's begin this journey and plan to be imperfect so that it goes perfectly. Yeah, yeah. I'd actually, it's probably a good time for me to share my childhood and yeah. also the way that I associated and, and I guess fell in love with certain foods. When I was younger, I used because I used to live next to my grandparents' house, like literally next door, yeah. I used to go to my grandmother's for like breakfast every morning. Mm-hmm. And she always used to, her way of rewarding me was to pack like biscuits and cookies into my lunchbox. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder now that is that potentially the reason why even today, if I eat cookie, like I'm the cookie monster now because I just devour <laughs> the cookies. But for me, it's like cook eating cookies is it just reinforces that old childhood reward. Like you've mm-hmm. done well, good job. And so it's reinforcing. So I'm wondering, could that be one of the reasons why today I'm still that eating that sort of food is highly reinforcing and rewarding? Yeah, I definitely think so. And that brings up another question. Is emotional eating always bad, right? Mm. Because eating food brings connection, love. Women more so than men really love to feed their family because it provides nutrition and sustenance. And especially if we're talking about people that are our grandmother's age, we're talking about people that came post-World War II where it was a world of just chaos and uncertainty and that type of thing. And so the generation, our parents' generation particularly, and then us that were fed by those people, it's you go to their house, they're always feeding you. Feed, feed. We're in, a, we're in a period where there's lots of food, so get as much as you can into you, which is exactly how we worked in tribes. It's like we were prepared for winter. We ate loads, we did heaps of hunting, and then there was periods of long fasts. And so it's, is emotional eating always bad? I would say no, because for many families, it's a ritual. It's a tradition. It brings you together. It's socializing. We all catch up over dinner. And so it's more about the the way that you do that. And you can start to improve those situations too. Like I would say a lot of my friends, it's normal for us to find the healthiest restaurant we can or to go to a really nice steakhouse kind of thing. And, and that's why I like to think of the idea of investing in your pleasure. It's if we are going to emotionally eat, spend the time, spend the money, make it an important event and really enjoy it rather than every five seconds, go and get a $1 chocolate bar that you beat yourself up for every single day. It's better to be like, you know what? Once a week, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, it might be date night. It might be whatever. And we've got to give ourselves permission to actually invest in the positive experience. And you'll know when it becomes a negative experience and people say, can't I just give myself permission every day? And I say, if you're giving yourself permission every day, you've got to ask yourself, is that your inner child trying to hack the system? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it yeah. is. And everybody knows where that line is intuitively for them. Because they'll start thinking like, oh, I'm doing it a bit much this week. And it's your inner child is trying to manipulate its way through the permission idea in order to say, hey, just give yourself permission. You're worth it. <laughs> it's, Hang on. This is not my mature self. This is my inner child trying to find a way out, which is evidence that it probably needs to be looked after and nurtured in another way. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. What about as far as hyper palatable foods? I know because mm-hmm. you've seen, you mentioned donuts before, Tim Tams, like the, what is the common theme amongst these foods? Is it the combination of the high fat and the high sugar? What is it about these foods that make them so appealing? 
Yeah, well, I think just as you said, the high, the combination of high fat, high salt, high sugar, and in some instances, high caffeine as well. But it's the brain response that we have, that addictive, like it just hits. That's why it's called the bliss point. And they literally have conferences. I've seen a bunch of research papers that came out in the 70s and 80s by McDonald's, where they spent a lot of time figuring out exactly how much oil needs to go into a hash brown to make what it ta- like what brain type melting. Of oil, what sort of oil are they even using? I'm curious to know. Originally, when Maccas started, they were using beef tallow. Like, that's really? what they were using back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is good, which is actually good. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what they use now. I'm going to guess it's canola or cottonseed. I don't know Something. exactly now, but, but there's a lot of research that goes into that. And the other thing is, too, is we're talking about emotional eating, but there is a biological reality to sugar addiction and food addiction because these companies spend millions of dollars researching your behavior and your brain response with heads in MRI machines testing how like how can we trigger the addiction pathways the dopamine pathways in the perfect amount that they're happy but unsatisfied which is the what they call the dorito effect you just keep going back into the bag right it's like where's the next one where's the next one where's the next one and speaking of doritos they did it with doritos they figured out that they could trigger the same mental pathway as gambling if that for every ninth chip they salted every ninth chip five times as much as every other chip and so that the chip you get where you just want to lather it up on your tongue and you're like oh there's so much goodness on this that's how hyper specific the research gets for which triggers the same thing as gambling addiction in a casino i can't believe that that's what's that called food engineering or like food science or something yeah, yeah. And then the scary thing is it's all legal. Like at what point does psychological manipulation through the illusion of nutrition, at what point does that become illegal? What if we could flip it and make it like do that same approach, but for healthy foods? Surely we could. Absolutely. That's basically yeah. what your podcast does, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interviewing guests <laughs> like yourself. Yeah. Man, that's crazy. Yeah. Mm. And also the that behavioral action of putting the hand down the packet, then doing that. Because I've heard that smoking, like one of the reasons why smoking is very addictive, not only because of the nicotine, but the actual physical act, the the movement of the arm to do that is actually reinforcing as well. Yeah. And there's also the culture that comes around a lot of these things. So like smoking used to be like socially, it was like, cool people did it, tough people did it. It was a real part of the image and the identity that somebody presented themselves to the world, which is how branding works. It's why people go towards certain logos and certain brands. It's this makes a statement about who I am. And so it's the same with different types of food. And depending on your social circle, like for my social circle, if I was caught in McDonald's, I'd probably be ruined. You know what I mean? <laughs> but for many people, oh, it's, but- of course we'd meet at Macca's. <laughs> no, but what if you're just ordering the chicken breast and that's it? You can do that now. Totally. And you can just order the burger patty as well. <laughs> we have to start a anti-Dorito club. <laughs> Man, Doritos are so good though. <laughs> <laughs> I find, I find, and this is something I've noticed myself is that I find if food is wrapped in either yellow or orange, mm-hmm. I'm really enticed to eat it. Like for yeah. example, for me, like I've got a weak point and that's Belvedas, the Belveda biscuits. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh man. Like I know they're terrible, but so that's my, if I want to let loose, like I'll just have them. Yeah. But it must be, I don't know if it's the packaging, the yellow, mm-hmm. it's just so enticing. It's funny you say that. I might have to introduce you to this guy. So I had a guy on my podcast, Glenn Livingston. He's a 
PhD in psychology, but he's also runs a super successful marketing company. But he shifted over to marketing because he used to be the guy, one of the main guys in the 80s and 90s that would be flown around the world like royalty because he helped a bunch of the sugar companies realize psychologically that colored packaging, bright colored packaging triggered the evolutionary brain to realize, think it was fruit. And fruit is so rare in nature and so calorie dense that we obviously feel super drawn to it. And then he, because he was like this psychological genius for these companies that made billions of dollars, he became obese and realized, oh my God, I've contributed to ruining, ruining the world. And then he ended up writing a, a book on binge eating and developing a binge eating practice and like for his psychological company and then became a marketer trying to help people solve the problems that he felt like he'd caused. <laughs> That's crazy. And actually, I'm glad you brought up the fruit element, the fruit aspect there, because I'd imagine you've seen this quite a lot and you've probably been asked this quite a lot. Let's define and let's talk about fruit and we'll talk about... <laughs> The differences between fruit juice and fruit concentrates. My audience, look, my audience is very like, yeah, they're very switched on. They understand like yeah, the basics sure. of nutrition. Like fruit juice is generally speaking, not going to be favorable for like blood sugar response unless like post-workout or whatever, post-exercise. But what about like, how do you discuss and describe fruit? Like what's your perception? <laughs> yeah. How, how do you perceive fruit in general? Yeah, in general, if it's there's two two groups of people, right? There's me and everybody else. <laughs> so, <laughs> and what I mean by me is the people that don't really need to worry about weight, right? So, it's if you don't need to worry about weight or blood sugar and you don't have any challenges regulating your sugar relationship, then it's probably fine. But for other people, I just think of it as it's just another dose of sugar on top of the sugar you're already eating. And particularly with the all of the high fructose corn syrup that people are consuming in the the mainstream food system and then eating fruit fruit and adding more fructose to that. Yeah, for me, it's just it's just more sugar on top of sugar. The other thing is when we talk about fruit, a lot of people neglect to acknowledge the genetic modification that has happened over the last 100 years to make these foods sweeter more, and, and with flavor dilution as well. It's the same with things like tomatoes. Like the, the dilution of these foods for the agricultural sector to be able to feed billions of people has meant that the consequences that the experience you have when you eat that food is less satisfying it's less flavorful it's less of all the things it's higher in sugar now but it's less of all of the things so that's why people we've got this idea that healthy food is boring because once if you it's like if you find a homegrown tomato you can smell it from the other side of the the garden right it's so rich but we've got these all of these different foods and so to me if we're talking fruit it's like when are we really eating fruit? If it's grown at home, possibly my parents have a little orchard in the backyard. The fruit there is so different, and the, the the apples are much smaller. You go to Coles or Woolworths here in Australia, our mainstream supermarkets, and it's half a watermelon is an apple, which is yeah. like one loads more sugar fits in that physical space. But two, as a result of the dilution and the water content, the flavor is reduced. So mm. we should be having smaller pieces of fruit with much higher taste and flavor that's in them. And same with vegetables across the whole thing, which is why I'm a big advocate for regenerative farming and moving towards that model, because we're going to be producing vegetables and fruit that are smaller, but also more nutrient dense. So yeah, generally I think food sorry, fruit for many people, it's yeah, let's move to vegetables, plenty of antioxidants in a colorful plate of vegetables. And if you do want to include fruit, it generally should be a sometimes food. Yeah, no, that makes sense. 
What about Maddie, as far as the, the satiety index, we haven't really mm-hmm. spoken about that at all on my podcast around like protein being very satiating yeah. fats, also being satiating fiber acting as like a strategic bulking agent, particularly for people who just struggle to actually get full. And I'd imagine you've had a ton of clients that have said they'll eat their meal, finish their meal, but they're still hungry. It's like, how do you go about addressing satiety? Yeah. As you mentioned, protein's obviously a massive one. And because I mostly work with women that have followed the Western diet predominantly or extreme diets of the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, a lot of that stuff is focused on salads. So it's effectively really low calorie. And so they're hungry just through a lack of mass. <laughs> and, and plus all of the ideas that red meat causes cancer and like... St- only men eat steak, which is a bit of an old, outdated idea. It's not so much now, but like these belief systems were a thing once upon a time that fat is bad and steak has lots of fat in it. And you got to cut the, the fat off the bacon and don't eat butter and margarine and all that. Definitely don't eat margarine, but these things that avoid fat, right? And that, what did that do? That created a world that's fat sick and nearly dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? So where obviously the brilliant thing about the internet is that it's allowed all of these doctors and nutritionists and naturopaths that are coming out and being able to give us access to different information that's producing a lot of great outcomes. And yeah, that I, I guide people towards trying to get in 30 grams of protein per meal, ideally. That's the ballpark. And for many people, even hitting that is, whoa, I feel stuffed because they're like, I haven't eaten this much protein in a single meal in a very long time. So that's where I go first for satiation. But I think another part of satiation is like your electrolyte balance, your potassium, sodium balance, that type of thing, and magnesium, manganese, calcium. Because if you're deficient in your electrolytes, you're still going to be driven to to look for carbohydrates in which you would find those electrolytes, which obviously our brains trained for these hyperpalatable foods. So we end up there, which don't quite scratch the itch, of course. So I think it's a combination of protein, fat, but also electrolytes. But the good thing is if you're eating the right protein and fats, you're going to hit those electrolytes in, get those electrolytes in anyway. Yeah, yeah, totally. What about as far as, so I'd imagine like a number of these individuals striving to drop body fat specifically, Mm -hmm. how do you go about balancing like training really hard and then, but then eating really poorly and then training really, like you'd see it all the time. It's like, how do you go about analyzing or looking at that? Do you mean the combination, the kind of like the move more, eat less kind of thinking? Yeah. 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 So, well, I find that people, so I don't count, the big thing about what I do is we don't count calories, we don't weigh food, which is like probably a lot of your listeners are like, what? What do you mean? But again, I'm dealing mostly with people that have a really damaged relationship with food. So, often a big part of the first, 10, 20, 30 kilos, or even 40, we've had people lose 100 pounds that, we didn't count a thing. We didn't track a thing. And that's because once once we start focusing on the right nutrition, we start moving towards that idea of intuitive eating. Now, I think intuitive eating is a bad place to start because most people are intuitively programmed for pizza. And that's because of just all the decisions they've made for the last few decades. But we want to move to a place, and there's a bunch of research on this, It's and it's I know it'll sound weird, but go with me, but called nutritional wisdom. So they've done this research on goats, they've done it on um, sheep, done it on humans, they've done it on lions. Um, and what they found is that there was this farmer decades ago, we're talking like 60s, that realized that at a particular part of the year, his goats would eat a particular type of feed or a particular type of bush. And he just got curious. And this eventually turned into a body of research, which was really well funded back in the day, where they discovered that 
goats just don't eat anything. We think farm animals just eat whatever's around, that they actually have this thing that we call nutritional wisdom, which is that they eat certain foods in a certain order to produce a physiological response in their body. And wow. if they, and so they set these goats up in different ways where they gave them the only option of food that they gave them would make them tired. And then the next day, they refused to eat it and went and figured out a way to get through the fence to go and eat something else. And wow. so then they did it on sheep and then they've done it on heaps of different animals and then they did it on children as well. And so what they did with this group of children is that they basically gave them access to every food that existed. Now, this is a long time ago, so it's not as hyper palatable as things are now, but they basically said to this group of kids, eat whatever you want, essentially. And the idea was that there was no control on them. There was no limitation. There was everything laid out for them whenever they wanted to eat. And that these kids, and they did it over a long period of time. It was like a year. And these kids would just naturally go towards what they needed and what they were deficient in at the time. And if they were getting sick, they would naturally move towards some of the foods that would boost their vitamin C or give them the electrolytes that they they didn't have. And by the end of this study, the professor that did the write-up on it, he literally said that this is the healthiest group of children I have ever seen. And it's this idea that, sure, we've got all of this intellectual conscious part of the brain thinking when it comes to science and medicine, but we've been around for thousands and thousands of years as a species. And so that's allowed us to develop this nutritional wisdom. And so the way that I go about it is like, in, in it, almost like we need to divorce ourselves a little bit from the overcomplication of thinking about nutrition. And so we go back to just get some protein in, get some veggies in, and people start being like, oh, I actually don't want the chocolate. That's interesting. Bone broth is often a big part of that. I get bone broth, everybody onto bone broth to start reprogramming that gut and, and their behavior around the nutrition that they get, good elect- electrolytes there, good fat, good protein. And so that's I get everybody to do that first thing of the day. And they find... I don't know, it's got nothing to do with stimulation, but they find, I just don't really want my morning coffee anymore, which is so bizarre, which in the beginning when I started doing that, I did not expect anyone to come off coffee. Loads of people end up off coffee. And it's just because we're starting to tap into what the body actually needs nutritionally. Obviously, we should support that with sleep practices and stress and that type of thing. So for me, yeah, working with people losing weight and trying to manage that space, it's like we want to get to a place where we're actually using what the body has innately in it in order to be able to move towards a healthy weight. And sure, there's going to be some other stuff that we need to navigate intellectually and figure that out. And that's all the emotional stuff and some of the nutritional stuff, because obviously people have issues that we have to look into and assess, oh, we actually need to supplement some of this. But as a general rule, I'm a big believer in, yeah, moving towards in that kind of pattern. Obviously, if you want disproportionate results, you've got to do it disproportionately. If you want to actually end up on stage or you want to be an elite athlete, you've got to do things a little bit differently. You might have to track, you might have to do these things, but yeah, that's what I, that's the way I think about it. Yeah, it's good. I'm glad you brought up that aspect of eating certain foods in a particular order, because I really want to, you're probably also familiar with glucose goddess on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah, Jesse, she's been on the podcast before. And she's talking about like the different order in which you eat certain foods and like Mm. how you can blunt the blood sugar spike. And yeah, like if you've got a meal with a pretty balanced meal, like the protein portion, carbohydrates and, and the veggies or the salad that this is just a little quick little hack for those listening in, like just eat the protein portion first and then finishing on the carbs to blunt that blood sugar spike. Yeah. yeah and that can go a pretty long way. If somebody just does that for let's say eight to 12 weeks, mm-hmm. I'd imagine we, we would see some degree of improvement in their 
glucose tolerance. Oh, I totally agree. And that's the exact advice that I give as well. Start with the steak, basically. Start with the protein. And then often the thing that you want to leave on the plate if you're full is is some of the carbohydrates for the people that I'm working with. I'm not anti-carbohydrate. I get people earlier in the day to steer clear from them a little bit, but particularly women that have also got hormone challenges. I think the carbohydrates play a really useful role, but we just do it later in the day. Geez, I can't imagine... I can't imagine what my life would look like with less than 400 grams of carbs per day. I'm just. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but you're a tank. (laughs) I'm pushing the throttle. If I don't eat enough, for me, it's if I don't eat enough carbs, like I just will feel like it'll hit like 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, I need a refeed because if I, I won't be able to sustain the same level of training and intensity the following day. Yeah, but in saying that, I do have a very strong sweet tooth. Like I've got, like, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. <laughs> I learned how to do this work by doing it for myself. <laughs> yeah, but oftentimes we see that a lot with like different practitioners. Is like, it's the hero. Is it the hero's journey? Yeah, the basically. Yeah, man. There's so much we can talk about. Is there like one? I want to ask you like one final question as far as maybe what's one golden tip or advice that you would give to those starting out their fat loss or weight loss journey? What's maybe one critical point you really want to emphasize that you've seen people make the same mistake or maybe there's something really critical you want to um, leave with my listeners? Yeah, I would say that for somebody that's in yeah, a situation where they want to heal, get better, get back to healthy, that willpower and self-savagery if it worked it would have worked the first time so we have to actually introduce a bit of compassion a bit of self-support a bit of care in order to nurture your way back and savagery and that kind of thing is is useful from time to time and once you get there maybe it's a useful tool in the marathon or on the footy playing footy here and there at the gym but if you're always doing it to yourself you're just going to keep getting the same results because if it worked the first time it would have worked so yeah just to be a bit kinder to yourself is my take-home message i think that goes much further than savagery yeah awesome awesome now finally obviously for my listeners there's going to be you know, a number of people that will probably want to connect with you or reach out or find you online. You've also got a great podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. We'll leave that in the show notes, but where else can they connect with you, Maddie? Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you said, the podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die. Lucas has been on there a couple of times, so you can check out his episodes. Otherwise, my website, which is just maddielandsdown.com and you can get a bunch of different freebies. We've got a 10-day challenge to improve your relationship with food and a few other things over there. So yeah, come and hang out. Yeah, awesome. I'll make sure to leave those linked in the show notes. But yeah, otherwise, Maddie, thanks for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate the invite. Awesome. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.